and uh, this evening's reading is uh, the book of Jude, verses 1 to 7. It's on page 1231. Well, you might not realise that, it's actually unnumbered, so uh, find one close to that and count forwards or backwards. Jude, verses 1 to 7. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace and love be yours in abundance. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. For certain men, whose condemnation was written about long ago, have secretly slipped in among you. They are godless men, who change the grace of our God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only Sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those uh, who did not believe, and the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home. These he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. This is the word of the Lord. Shall we pray uh, together as we consider this reading? Jude writes later on, But you, dear friends, build yourselves up in your most holy faith and pray in the Holy Spirit. Heavenly Father, we ask that as we look at this letter together tonight and the next two weeks, you will build us up and that we will take what is heard and build ourselves up in our most holy faith. And we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit as we do that tonight and the next two weeks. We ask it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. One of the uh, hardest things uh, about uh, practicing in medicine, which is what I used to do before this, uh, is that uh, when you meet a patient uh, and you have to say to them something like, I'm sorry, uh, I've got bad news. This is a situation that you never want to be in. Uh, You would love to give good news, or you would love to just talk straight away about excellent and effective new treatments. But sometimes you have to give a hard diagnosis to a person or a family. You do it, though, because you value the truth. It's important to tell the truth. And you do it because you care uh, for other people. You care for your patients. You want them to understand the gravity of the situation. And then you hope that treatment will be taken and will ultimately be effective. 
Sometimes, in life, you have to do the hard thing. That doesn't seem loving, but actually is the most loving thing you can do in that situation. Well, the letter of Jude is a little bit, about, a little bit like this. He longs to talk about the good news of salvation, the gospel, but he has to address some hard things uh, instead. He has to warn of some bad news because he's committed to the truth and because he loves others. And if we take on board the bad news that Jude has actually got and act appropriately, it's actually going to safeguard the good news of the gospel in the long run. He writes in verse 3, it's a key verse really, for the whole letter. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith. He wanted to write about the gospel, but he realised he needed to write to tell people to fight for the gospel. That's what this letter uh, of Jude is all about. We're going to spend three weeks looking at it, uh, but we need to realise now, and perhaps you're already a little bit familiar with it, uh, and know that at first sight, uh, it's not palatable. It's not palatable to 21st century people in our culture. It's also not how we're used to thinking of Christianity. Uh, we think of Christianity in terms of good news, God's grace, accepting others, seeking peace and unity. But Jude's letter contains some bad news. It warns of God's grace being distorted. And more shockingly, he says there are some people who are to be condemned. And that sometimes Christians need to fight about the content of our faith and sometimes be disunited with others who claim to be believers. The Christian faith uh, is a religion of peace. We serve Jesus, the Prince of Peace. But the reality, Jude reminds us, is that there is a spiritual war inside the church. It's not of our choosing. But if we're to act faithfully, we have no option but to engage in the fight. If we love the truth, and if we love other people. It's a little bit like, I'm not sure this is the best illustration, but in 1939, this country was a nation that longed for peace. People worked so hard uh, to try and avert another terrible war. But in the end, the nation had to fight for the sake of truth and for love, not just of our own people, but the people of the rest of Europe. Something big was at stake, uh, something so big that it was right for peace-loving people to fight. And that's what's going on in this letter of Jude. But let's ask, before we dive into it, who is this Jude who wrote this one short letter in the New Testament? Well, verse 1, he identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Jude and James uh, are almost certainly the half-brothers of Jesus himself. They're mentioned by name in Mark 6 and Matthew 13. The James here was the leading elder of the Jerusalem church. He comes to big prominence in Acts 15. So these guys are not apostles. Uh, they're not one of the twelve or Paul. Uh, verse 17, in fact, will come to make that clear. But they are the apostles' assistants 
in the early church. So this little letter comes from within the body uh, of the apostles' teaching, and that's why it's in the New Testament. So there's Jude, half-brother of Jesus, and amazingly, and it would be great to talk about this a lot more, he's also now a servant uh, of Jesus, his big brother. Well, who's he writing to? Look at verse 2, verse 1. To those who have been called, who are loved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. It, it starts uh, with this wonderfully positive description uh, of what it means to be a Christian. Called, loved, and kept. Called in the past by God, loved in the present, and people who will be kept for the future, for uh, eternal life. It's, it's a wonderful uh, description uh, of Christian believers. Jude's um, hearers were probably Jewish believers. As, as we read through the letter, we'll see it's very Jewish uh, in its nature. But their faith is the same faith uh, of all Christians at all times. The specifics of their situation may not be exactly the same as ours, but I think we'll see the general principles are. So will we listen then to this Jude and what he's got to say? He would love to dwell on this wonderful gospel. He would love to continue in this positive way. And the great thing about this letter is it ends like that as well. It ends wonderfully positively. But in the middle, he has to deal with the terrible truth that there is a fight on. Verse 3 and 4, I think, actually are brilliant uh, sort of summaries of the essence of the whole letter. Let me give you my summary for this talk. Uh, Jude is saying something like this. Fight for the once-for-all gospel because false teachers have sneaked in to destroy it. Fight for the once-for-all gospel because false teachers have sneaked in to destroy it. So first we'll consider fight for the once-for-all gospel. I'll read verse 3 again. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. The word contend uh, could be translated also as wrestle. He's telling them there is a hard struggle uh, going on. Uh, It's going to be hard to defend the truth of the gospel. He describes the gospel here as the faith once for all entrusted to the saints. This is a pact with uh, meaning. The faith here is referring to the body of Christian belief uh, and it's the faith that has been delivered once uh, for all. Important little words, once for all. The original good news taught by Jesus, which he trained his apostles to tell others, this good news was a complete good news package uh, that was delivered once for all, for all of God's people, the saints. You see, Jesus taught uh, that humankind is facing a great problem. We're cut off from God because of our rebellion against him. We're out of relationship with him by nature. And so we're facing not just alienation from him now, but separation from him forever uh, in hell. But God has wonderfully provided a solution to the problem. And he's announced it in the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. To speak medically again, the human race has a great spiritual disease. And Jesus has the cure. And he's given it 
to his authorized doctors, the apostles, and they have given it to everyone else. There's this one treatment to the problem that we face. It's a complete package. You can't add to it uh, or take away from it. It's the faith, the whole faith, and nothing but the faith. Though it is available wonderfully to everyone who will receive it. But Jude is warning us because there are some who've come along and are saying they have authority to change it. But if you change the medicine, it will no longer work. And so the situation is serious, really serious. People's eternal salvation is at stake. Heaven or hell is at stake for Jude's hearers and for others uh, in the church. That is why Jude says we must fight for this gospel. We must fight for it not to be changed. This wonderful gospel that can save us from hell for eternal life in heaven. If it was only minor points, Uh, of teaching or second order issues uh, that were at stake then Jude would say not to contend in fact the New Testament condemns contentiousness among Christians as unfruitful and unhealthy for us but this situation is different eternal salvation is at stake and so we must fight in the same way that in 1939 the you know, the health, the well-being of the whole of Europe was at stake, and so it was right to fight. Now, talk three on Jude will address the question, how to fight? We might be thinking, this sounds really hard, but we're going to see that um, in that talk, there is a way to contend in a godly way, not in a worldly way, but that will have to wait. For now, We've just got to recognise and take to heart that there are times when Christians have to defend the gospel against others who call themselves Christians but are actually distorting it. It's a necessary duty upon us to make sure that the church keeps dispensing the true medicine that can save the wonderful message of salvation. I would suggest it's a responsibility on us all, every individual Christian. It's a responsibility especially on those who are called to teach the Bible We're all called to teach the Bible, but especially on those who are called to teach it publicly, and especially on those who've got wider responsibilities in the church, those who get involved. It's a responsibility. Fight for the once-for-all gospel. But then secondly, uh, why do this? Well, because false teachers have sneaked in to destroy the gospel. Verse 4, for certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in amongst you. They are godless men who change the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Well, what are these false teachers like? What are they up to? Well, there's four things, I think, uh, in this verse and the next few about them. Each one, I'm going to say, begins with an F. F uh, for false. Now, not every single kind of false teacher uh, acts in this way, but these are, I think, in many ways, pretty typical. First, first F, we need to be forewarned. Forewarned is forearmed. Certain men whose condemnation was written about long ago. He's referring to the Old Testament. Jude's letter has nine Old Testament examples uh, for us. Nine prototype false believers, if you like, that would have been familiar uh, to the original uh, hearers. The Old Testament taught that there would be false teachers coming, 
Uh, They'd been there in the past and they would come again. The apostles taught that and they said in particular in the last days, in the time after Jesus went away, until he returned, false teachers would be around. False believers, false teachers will always be around. So we've been forewarned. We are to expect the presence in the church of God, the visible church, people who are out to change and distort the glorious gospel. We've just got to recognise the truth that false teachers could stand behind this lectern. False teachers could teach in our house groups, in our children's groups, or in the wider church of England. Now this is not to say let's be paranoid or have a witch hunt, but it is to ask, has it crossed your mind that these people could be present? If not at the moment, uh, then it could happen one day. I suspect this kind of thought doesn't register with us that much. So it's really important that we take Jude's letter to heart. We need to be forewarned. These guys are always about. Second, let's observe some of their tactics. Now my F for this one is kind of the weakest of the four, uh, but here it is. It's furtive. Furtive in my dictionary means sly or stealthy. For certain men have secretly slipped in among you. Later on he points out that they're present eating at their fellowship meals, they share the table, but they haven't been noticed uh, as false. This fits of course with what Jesus said, didn't he, about false prophets being wolves. But they never come dressed as wolves with sharp pointy teeth, they dress in sheep's clothing. They never come up and say, hello, I'm a false teacher. No, If they're among us, they will look like one of us. They will look like a St Mary's type. In wider Church of England circles, which I have the joy of mixing in, uh, I know that there are people who are out to change the gospel. I've heard such teaching. But when you meet such people, typically they are nice. Everyone in the Church of England is nice. Pretty much. So the hard is, the false is hard to spot. That's the nature of things. If you're a Star Wars geek, uh, maybe there are some of you here, maybe some of you don't like Star Wars at all, but the false teacher's approach is a little bit like that of the emperor. Think of uh, the senator, later chancellor, uh, later emperor Palpatine, who appeared to be a very, very nice man, didn't he? But actually, he was a Sith, if you know what one of those are, baddie, basically, Uh, He was slipping into the power structures uh, of the Republic to destroy it. Now, of course, he's an extreme villain, uh, comedy villain, sort of pantomime villain, really. False teachers are not necessarily that extreme. They may not fully realise that they are doing what they are doing. They may be self-deceived, but they do slip in sneak in uh, and are furtive. That is the tactic. That's the way of things. That makes it hard, doesn't it, for us? But the third F helps us because the way to recognise the false is to look at the fruit they produce. This is both their teaching and their lifestyle. Let's consider their fruit. They are godless men who change the grace of our God into a licence for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. 
It is the wonder of the good news that we can be accepted by God and made his friends and have eternal life on the basis of Jesus' death for us. It's something not earned, but a gift of his. It's called grace. Amazing grace. It's the most unique and wonderful thing about being a Christian. But these godless men are taking this wonderful truth and twisting it. They are saying, great, God's grace, it's brilliant. It means God will forgive you, whatever you've done. It means you're, you can keep on sinning and God will still forgive you. You can keep on living your own way in the knowledge that it'll all be all right. Do you see the subtle twist? They are twisting grace into a license for immorality. James Bond has a license to kill. Uh, he's above the law. Well, that is what these guys are saying Christians have. A license to immorality. We're above God's law. And in doing so, they are denying that Jesus is sovereign and Lord. That's what Christians uh, are called to. See, in the gospel, forgiveness is received on the basis of repentance. That's what it says time and again throughout the gospels. Repentance means to genuinely turn away from sin... Uh, and to turn and face God and trust him. And when we do this, the promise is our sins will be forgiven. That is, of course, what we are reenacting uh, each time we say a confession of repentance in church. It's an important reminder uh, of how important it is to do this. If we are repentant, we are committing ourselves to have Jesus as our Lord and to live God's way, obeying him. Not above the law, but under Christ's law. And so if there's no repentance, then there's no forgiveness. And if Jesus is not our Lord, then he's not our saviour either. To use the medical idea again, these guys are saying that if you've simply registered at the doctor's surgery... Uh, then you will automatically be healed. You can go on living as unhealthily as you like, as long as you're registered as a patient. But the truth is, of course, you've got to see the doctor, haven't you? And you've got to take his prescription, uh, even if it's wonderfully free, a free health service, a free prescription. Uh, and they are in the Christian faith. But you've still got to see him and take the prescription if you want healing. So... These people have taken the most glorious thing in, Christian, in Christianity, God's grace, and twisted it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a famous martyr of the last century. He called this cheap grace. Let's quote him. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, and grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. That's the nature uh, of these false uh, teachers and their teaching. But of course, and this is where it gets hard for us, in practice, people are not quite so blatant, generally speaking. They normally present things a little bit more subtly. So, they never generally sort of say you don't have to repent. Uh, they do call to repentance, but they call to repentance of not all sins. 
That's the key. They usually just call us to repent of the sins that the world agrees with, rather than the sins that God says are true and the world doesn't. So, for example, it's very easy for a church leader today to call us to repent of racism uh, or colonialism or things like that, because everyone agrees, pretty much, that these are wrong. But it's not real repentance if we haven't wholeheartedly turned towards God in every way. My old theology teacher, Oak Hill, put it like this. I think the acid test of whether our repentance is really towards God is when God and the world disagree. If the benchmark of what counts as sin and requires repentance is God's will, then we will repent ourselves and call for repentance of others when God has said something is sinful, and we will do so even when the world disagrees. So that is the fruit of these false teachers. No true repentance uh, and turning God's grace into a license for immorality. There's false teaching and ungodly living. And it's not a minor issue. Salvation, eternal salvation, is at stake. But finally, we need to take to heart uh, one final thing about these false teachers, and that is their future. We need to recognise how serious uh, their error is. Their future is condemnation. Look down at verses 5 to 7. We've got here three past examples from the Old Testament as a warning to us of how serious their mistake is. Three groups of people who were greatly privileged uh, with wonderful blessings, but who abandoned their privileges for their own selfish gain. They pursued their own desires uh, and they didn't have true repentance towards God. Verse 5, the people of Israel, all of them were saved from Egypt. What, What amazing privilege they had. But if you read the book of Numbers, in the desert, most of them, nearly all of them in the end, complained against God and said, we'd rather go back to Egypt or die in the desert. They didn't have real faith and repentance. And God gave them over to that desire and they did die in the desert. They faced condemnation uh, for their not turning to him. Or look at verse 6. These are angels who fell, angels who left their right place in heaven and pursued their own selfish desires. It's possible that it's referring here to an incident in Genesis 6 uh, where it may be that angels left heaven and had sexual relationships with human women. Their end uh, was condemnation, being kept, as it says here, for the day of judgment. And then finally we've got Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities in the Jordan Valley. A place that was described in Genesis as so fertile that it was like the Garden of the Lord, like the Garden of Eden. They they pretty much lived in the best place uh, in the world. But although God gave them this, they didn't live up to their privileged position. As the prophet Ezekiel put it, now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They didn't help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore I did away with them, as you have seen. The detestable things is presumably referring to their sexual immorality. In Genesis 19, we saw it in their attempt at homosexual sex with the men 
there were actually angels who came to visit Lot. They were proud. They didn't repent towards God. They went and did whatever they wanted, whatever they fancied, all kinds of sexual immorality. They're very like the 21st century West. They are very like some of the teachings uh, that are going on in some parts of the church. And the result was their condemnation. These three examples tell us what awaits the false teachers and believers, those who don't truly repent and who turn God's grace into a license to do whatever we want. It's condemnation. And of course, the the really important thing is that the Old Testament condemnations are just a little picture uh, of the final judgment that is uh, to come. Verse 6, the judgment that is coming on that great day. End of verse 7, a punishment of eternal fire. So do you see why Jude is so concerned to warn us? It's so serious. There are people whose teaching and lives are heading towards hell, and they would so distort the church's teaching that it means other people will be heading there with them. Now, Jude does not want to write about this, and I do not want to speak about this, but he is acting out of a deep concern for the truth and out of love for others. That is why it is necessary to fight for the once-for-all gospel. That's why it is necessary for us to just have this on our register. There will be this kind of false teaching about. We need to not just receive the gospel, but it's our responsibility to safeguard the gospel, to safeguard the teaching of it in the church, because eternal salvation is at stake for people that we love and long to be saved. A vital Christian duty. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that your people, we are described as called, loved, and kept. We praise you for your wonderful grace to us that we have this wonderful salvation. Please help us to be faithful in the gospel that we've been entrusted with and proclaim it faithfully to ourselves and others and help us to contend for it where it is being distorted. Help us to do that in the way that Jude will tell us to do it. And as he finishes, to him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy, to the only God our Saviour be glory, majesty, power and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen.